We're looking at the book of Samuel, some tricky texts. If you were tuned into that reading, you'll be wondering, perhaps, if you were tuned in, what the heck's he going to say about that kind of a massacre? Uh, God's Word's really speaking to us about who we are. I um, don't know what you know about filters and cameras. I just feel like I'm being introduced to the world of um, filters and cameras. We're going to see a picture in just a second. I'm a bit late to this, um, this whole party. Um, there you go. You might be familiar with what's happening there. Apparently, 80% of girls under the age of 13 have used the filter option um, to enhance their looks. 80%. Four-fifths, if my maths is correct. Now, on the one hand, I read a statistic like that. And I've, I've enjoyed a filter. I've had the odd funny moment with a filter. Um, I've benefited from having less wrinkles uh, using the filters and all that kind of stuff. And on the one hand, you know, there's like, it's a nice thing. And on the other hand, it's a terrifying black hole uh, that we are taking ourselves down. It is. All of the um, experts are putting their hands up at the moment and saying, we're going down a crazy pathway. There are going to be repercussions, and I don't know what bracket you want to put them repercussions in, whether it's mental health or confidence or whatever else it is, but this is a tricky time for us, or at least it will be. On the one hand, it's great to have filters. On the other hand, it leads us down a ruinous path, and there is a sense, and you can see this, I think there's a bit of a pushback against this. Some people occasionally now are posting, here's me without any filters. The pushback is, that we need to be able to see who we are. For us to thrive, for us to be all right, we need to be able to have a look at ourselves. We're going to have to figure out how to face that picture in the mirror, that picture on the Zoom call, that picture on our phone. What I would add to that is, I think, as we think about God, I think one of the things I would say is we can, we can swallow God with a filter. We can swallow the idea of God if it makes things look good for us. If it represents us in a good way, or it represents the whole world in a good way. If it takes all the grim edges away, I think lots of people can embrace God in that sense. If it all looks rosy, uh, we can say, I think more people would say, I, I can believe in that God. I think, I think that's often how it works. That's often how we think of it. That's often how people outside church would think of it. If it all looks all right, if it puts me in a good light, I could maybe believe it. And the fact that it doesn't always do that is something I really struggle with. The Bible, God's word, as he speaks to us, as he breathes himself out to us, I don't think he's trying to do that at all. Listen to this verse, and I'm sorry I've not got it up for you. Maybe go away and look at it afterwards. It's in the book of James. James tells it straight. This is what God's word does. This is what God's word is about. Anyone who listens to the word... Uh, but does not do what it says, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. God's word is there to show us who we really are. And it's a brilliant thing to be able to look and see who you really are. God's word is there to say to us, 
This is what's really right with you. This is what's brilliant about you. This is what's really wrong with you. This is what is really happening with human beings. This is what's really possible for human beings. So in terms of us figuring out who we are, God's word is there to tell us the truth about who we are. It's there to give us the unfiltered, necessary look into our lives. And this passage is one of those passages that doesn't just tell us what we want to see. It tells us of human beings as they are. These things, when we read, we, we read through that passage, we think, this is horrific. This is an awful thing. This is terrible to watch. And yet we put the news on and it's worse than that. God, in his book, is showing us who we are. There's two scenes. don't know how um, carefully you, you were able to follow the reading. There's two scenes that we're going to look at. The first scene, I might, there might be a better description for this, but it's the contrasting kings in their lairs. We're going to look at the, the would-be king and the actual king, and we see them both in their lairs, and we see what they're both like in their different circumstances. So if, if the text can be put up, the first little bit is about David. Um, that's sort of one through to about three or four. This is what King David's like. These, I try and remind you over and again, Saul and David start off in the same spot and we get to see the journeys that they go on. We get to see what shapes them and what makes them how they are. Verse 1 says, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. He's at a point in his life, is David, and it's an unusual spot, I think, having been adulated, having been anointed, having, I don't know if you heard this last week, got Goliath's sword in his hand. If you remember last week, he had to feign insanity just to survive. And now he's ended up in a cave. That's where he finds himself. This is a low, weird, humbling moment. This is where David finds himself. This is his lair. This is where he is as the would-be king. It's going to be a time for David of inner transformation. The commentary that I was reading says that chapters 22 through to about 26, David shifts from being somebody who is given the title of a king to somebody who finds the character of a king. We're going to see, starting from round about here, we've seen glimpses of it perhaps when he fought Goliath, inner depth, real inner depths, qualities beyond just being good looking and being a warrior. We're going to see what he's made of. So we start to see that here in verse 2. End of verse 1, it says, When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. If you remember in the story of David and Goliath, his brothers and his family couldn't wait to get rid of him. Do you remember there was those insults that they traded? They didn't like him. And yet at this point, they rally to him. And they're not the only people that rally to him. Look at the picture that it presents. And just remember, bear in mind, he's got nothing going for him really at this point in time. Look who rallies to him, verse 2. See if this, this reminds you of anybody, any would-be king. All those who were in distress or in debt or disconnected, discontented rather, gathered around him, and he became their commander. All the marginalized, all the broken, all the people that were upset were the people that rallied, not because he had anything, but because of his character. Does it remind you of anybody? Remember the people that gathered around Jesus? Who were the people that gathered around Jesus? 
this army that David's got, it's 400. I think the numbers are nearly always there for a reason. The reason is not that it's a big number, but that it's a small number. He's not got a huge army, and his army's not great. They're disaffected people. They're marginalized people. It paints a bit of a picture, I think, of Jesus. But that's not where his depths end. He gets deeper than that. Verse 3, From there David went to Mizpah in Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Would you let my any, any good-looking lad that cares for his mum and dad, girls, if you're looking for a future partner, that's where to start right there. Would you let my father and mother come in and stay with you until I learn what God would do for me? He's not only a caring person, but he's somebody who is a lovely I mean, he's good looking to start with, plays the guitar and all that, but he's caring and he's got hidden depths. He's worried about his mum and dad, but not only is he worried about his mum and dad, whilst he's worrying about his mum and dad, he's waiting on what? He's waiting on God to speak to him. He's got double depths. He's loving his mum and dad and he's waiting. How good of a person is that? It's like if you can imagine that you found out that Brad Pitt... Gorgeous Brad Pitt wrote poems, but not only wrote poems, he wrote poems while he was caring for his mum and dad. He's got that kind of depth. That's the, the, the writer, he's taking you down this picture. He's like, look, David, he's not just a superficial character that can knock a giant down. This guy's got depth, and the guy with depth draws the crowd. The people come to him, not just because he can knock Goliath down, but because even when he's got nothing, they're starting to see a character that they can follow. Now, the next little passage is the actual king. And it's a bit of a contrast. Read with me verse 6. And just remember the king that we've been presented with, David. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. Now check him out. He's not in a cave. Where is he? Saul was seated, spear in hand. The amount of times I've read in these last few weeks that Saul sat down, he's got a spear in his hand. If you're going to listen to me, you can listen to me because I've got my spear in my hand. You could have it as a bit of a metaphorical picture. Sometimes you talk to people and you think, this person's got a spear in their hand. I'm going to listen to them because they've got a threat behind them. Under the tamarisk tree on a hill. He's not hiding in a cave. Google tamarisk tree. I had to Google tamarisk tree to find out. I want a tamarisk tree in my garden. They're absolutely beautiful. It's like God has created a pagoda for rich people to live in. It's absolutely gorgeous. And that's where he is, on a hill. How does he keep his crowd? Verse 7. The people aren't rallying to him. Look how he keeps his crowd in verse 7. He said to them, this bit reminds me of a scene in Braveheart, where Robert the Bruce com confronts William Wallace. And he finds out that people will fight for William Wallace no matter what. And Robert the Bruce is upset because he realizes that people will only fight for him. It's only a film, but it's just a film I've watched a billion times. People will only fight for him because he gives them land and titles. That's the story in Braveheart. People follow William Wallace because they're just inspired by his character. He said to them, and he starts to speak like a politician. And when you know somebody starts to speak like a politician, you're going down a certain direction, let's say that. Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse talking to them about promises. Will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? He starts to manipulate them. 
He starts to give them false promise. He sees them not following him, and he says, well, you're not going to follow David, are you? Look what I can give you. He starts to make political promises to them. We've got an idea about political promises. But that's not the only way he tries to keep them. He gets even more desperate than that. See verse 8? You know one of your pals is getting a bit desperate when they try and keep their... And you'll, you'll probably have friends like this who try and keep your friendship and keep you following them in this manner. He gets whiny and he starts to wallow in self-pity. So if you don't follow me because you keep my promises, I want you to follow me just because you feel sorry for me. And tell you how hard my life is. Will you still be my friend? <laughs> is that why you have all conspired against me? I think that's sassy, isn't it? Is that what you call it now? That's kind of sassy behavior. No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. You're all plotting behind my back. Stop plotting behind my back and be my true friends. None of you is concerned about me. You've stopped caring about me. Or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me. As he does today. He wallows. David's followers rally around him just because of who he is. Saul's followers are bound to him by empty promises and wallowing. And that's the last thing that we see. Other thing, and I I, uh, forgot to mention it when we looked at David. He's not just a kind, caring guy. I thought, oh, maybe I did mention it. He's listening to God. See that in verse 5. We skip back to verse 5. He's not only a kind, caring guy, but he's got attention to God. He's listening in for God speaking. He's seeking out his will, and he hears from God. Now look at Saul. Look at Saul in verse 9. He stopped listening to God, and it's often one of the things we're going to think about in this passage. It's just the way that he is. He stopped listening to God because God has stopped saying things that he wants to hear. Have you ever stopped listening to God because of that? God's telling you something through his word, by his spirit, and you're saying, I'm going to go and listen to somebody else. I'm going to get a second opinion on this life matter because I don't like what I'm being presented with. I've done that heaps of times. So he turns to, now I think he's described as a shepherd or something like that. I, as I, and I'm, I get carried away with this kind of thing. Doeg is kind of like some mafia henchman sort of guy. He's even got the sort of name, Mad Dog Doeg, that kind of thing, isn't it? That's just come to me, I'm very pleased with that, that's just come to me right there. Mad Dog Doeg, the Edomite. Critically, not a person of God, the Edomites, the pagans. He's gone outside of God's people for a voice. That's what he's gone to. And Doeg, as we get to know him a little bit, He's one of these sort of rising stars. He's trying to make his way. He'll almost do anything um, to get a heads up. But Doeg the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Two things from this contrast, these different kings. God's word as we look at these kings, and as we often look at Scripture, reminds us that we're on a path. It might be too obvious, a kind of imagery for you to think about, but it's a truth, it's a reality. If you look back on the last couple of weeks of your life, the last couple of years of your life, you'll realize you're on a bit of a journey, you're on a bit of a path. God's Word asks us to think about the path that we're on. 
It shows us these contrasting kings. And it says, just have a think about which camp you're in. Which guy would you line up with? Which guy would you settle down with? Which guy are you most like? Does, and these are just a few questions that came into my head as I thought about the contrast. Does anger govern you? Or are you on a path to peace? Which would more accurately describe you? Are you more likely to have a metaphorical spear in your hand and get people to listen to you like that? Or are you more likely to be like David and have Goliath's sword, but be looking not to use it? You on a path to peace, or are you governed by your anger? Does the need for position send you crackers? Or are you learning humility? Are you like Saul, and this need to be the top dog actually governs your life and actually sends you a bit crackers? It can do, can't it? Life gets like that when you want to climb the ladder. It can be obsessive. And God asks us to look at the path we're on. And he shows us a different path, one that doesn't need to get right to the top, one that learns humility. Do we follow somebody because they tell us what we want to hear, like Doeg? Or do we follow somebody whose character compels us? Do we follow somebody because we see them and we are blown away? You see, this is the story, I think, of faith and Christianity. Almost in a nutshell, maybe even in an unlikely place. You might be wondering, or you might think that it would be better if God offered people more, if there was more of a deal, if he had a political promise, if there was a back and forth. God doesn't deal us into faith. He doesn't strong arm us into faith. He doesn't do that. Sometimes we think that that's what it looks like. God doesn't do that. God compels us by his character to believe. If you've come to faith another way, if you've experienced God in another way, I don't know that that's what it is. When I see the Bible story, I see God presenting his character. He presents it in his son Jesus and he says, look at this, look at what I'm like. This is why you should follow me. He gives us it like it is. This is it like it is. We might want the story to be different. We might want a a different story. We might think God's way would work better if it had a different story. But God says to us over and over again, here I am. Here's my character. Here's my son. Will you follow it? Will you have faith in it? And it shows us it how it is. I really was struck by this picture of David's army. David's got nothing going for him except he's developing a godly character. And 400 people put their hands up, disconnected, marginalized people, and they say, this is for me. It's a glimpse, a shadow of the people of God, I think. God is showing us, I would suggest, would be my opinion, how it is. Different points in history, there's been more of us and less of us, but we've pretty much always been outnumbered, outmatched, a bunch of diverse, slightly broken souls who've seen a genuine leader. God shows us it is the way it is. That's the first scene. The second scene. Now, to get the second scene, this is the outcome of the king's plotting and who the kings are. It's, the character, it's what their characters are like 
in the conflict. It's sort of verse 11 through to 15 um, is where it gets going. And for this, to, to get your head around this part of the text, so you're thinking onto this massacre, you're thinking onto the blood spill over the ephods, you're thinking up to that horrible act. To get your head around this little bit, you need a previously on. Do you know what, do you know what I mean by previously on? Do you watch The Crown or show? You, you do, you watch shows. When you watch shows, don't be a person who skips past the previously. Are you one of these people? Do you know when it comes up when you're watching Netflix? The previously comes on and you say to yourself, I'm not going to bother with this. Let me just get right to the story. Don't do that. They've thought about the previously. They're putting, um, you, some of you are laughing because you're like, yeah, I flick on. It's coming on, I think, I don't need to bother with this. Get me straight to the story. The writers and producers are dropping seeds. When you watch the previously, you'll just get a glimpse of somebody and it'll be like, you need to see this little bit. This bit's really going to matter. So if you're watching it with your partner or something like that, you'll be like, ah, watch for this. That's how it'll go on the previously. Samuel, as best he can, because he's not got film and all the rest of it, he's got a book, he gives us some previously. So the first previously we get is in chapter two. Eli sons commit horrific sexual abuses in the temple. So this is left there, and, and God comes in and says, there will have to be a reckoning for this. He drops the bomb early doors. There's going to have to be a reckoning for this. This cannot happen. The first previously. The second previously, I don't know how much Paul talked about this last week, but the Doeg character, the mafia guy, was in there last week. Did you notice him? I don't know if Paul mentioned him. He was in there. He didn't do anything. Samuel just dropped him in and stood there, a bit like, the, a bit like Saul, with his arms crossed, was Doeg. There's a previously here, so just hold on to that. The, the scene is set. Don't forget it. And watch the previously next time you're watching a Netflix show. Doeg here stitches up Abimelech. Saul is paranoid. He seems like he's, he's always got a spear in his hand. He's very quickly angered. He's self-obsessed. And Doeg stitches him up. He does, he says, and you, you may have done this in your life, he says just enough. Do you see that in the text? Just enough to send Saul over the edge. To send Saul on the mad hunt. Verse 11, then the king sent for priest Ahimelech, son of Ahatihub, and all the men of his family who were priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahatihub. Not easy to say. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? So this is referencing last week's talk from Paul. David tricked the high priest. The high priest, I don't know if he didn't spot it, but he gave Paul bread, he gave David bread, and he gave him a sword. Saul said to him, and as Saul sees this, he's like, this is a conspiracy against me. You're plotting against me. So we're seeing Ahimelech brought before him, and we see in his defense of that. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered, and I take this, I think we're supposed to take this as, as honest. This is his honest answer. Who of all of your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your household? Was this the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. 
Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows about this whole affair. It's a believable defense. He's looking at Saul saying, yeah, I did it. I looked after him and I'd do it again because he's your bodyguard. He's like your second son. Of course I looked after him. Saul can't see it. And this, I think, is the point of the text. He can't see it. He can't see the honest answer. He can't see a good way through because he's blinded. He's blinded by self-importance. He's blinded by jealousy. He's blinded by rage. And as you can see as the text develops, he sends Doeg, the mafia mad dog henchman, to go and kill all the priests, to go and kill all of the priests' families, and then to go and kill the whole town. It's a massacre. It's butchery. It's hard to read. But one person gets away. This is how the story goes. One person gets away. Abimelech's son, Abiathar, flees to David. One person escapes this horrible mess. Read with me verse 20 and 23. And notice what David says to him. The son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. David does something incredible. And it's not, it's not in any of the manuals um, for grief counseling. It's not advisable if, you, if you're on a, a, a leadership character wanting to climb the ladder. Do you see the words that David uses? David looks at this whole situation and he says, I'm responsible for this. Leaders don't say that, do they? Politicians don't say that. Kings don't often say that. David looks at it and he says, I can see my hand in this. Stay with me. I'll keep you safe. Do you see the contrast in the two kings? Do you see the difference between them? Do you see the paths that the author is showing us? Saul causes a bloodbath, but he's got no idea that it's him. So he doesn't change. He can't change. David, too, causes a bloodbath in the end, but sees his hand in it. And that's part of his change. It's the key. What does the contrast show us? God's word again here, I think, shows us just how it is. We could uh, dissect the world philosophically in a hundred different ways. One of the ways that the Bible does it, and it's really, really strong on this. And it should, if we're believers, it should shape uh, the way that we look at everything. It says, this is a real wrestle of good and evil. It's something that we overlook all the time. We put the news on and we see the news and we digest the news. Uh, we think about our troubles and we digest our troubles and we, we, we crack on with life. And so often we forget that. The Bible says over and over again, this is a good and evil, it's a wrestle. That's the wrestle that's going on. That's the wrestle that's going on in the world. That's the wrestle that's going on in people's hearts. That's the thing that really matters. So, 
seeing yourself, being able to see your hand in that storyline becomes the key. More than the hand that you're dealt in life, more than the fortune that you're dealt in life, if it's about good and evil, if it's that wrestle, the Bible says, being able to see yourself, which is the hardest thing to do, to look in that mirror, take that filter off, and see yourself as you are, is the best thing that can happen to you. What powers David to great success? Read through the Psalms. If you're looking for some resources, read through the Psalms. What empowers David? What makes him strong? He's great. He's awesome. He's a warrior. That's not what makes him great. Read his Psalms. David's powered not by thinking himself better than everybody else. And that's why he's loved. David is powered because he realizes, and you see this in the depths of the Psalms, that he's just as bad as everybody else. And yet he is completely loved. Parental love can be a superpower for your kids. It can be an actual superpower. Here's when it works best. You think sometimes, we show our love more often than not, and I'm desperately guilty of this, when they do something great and you lavish love and praise on them. And that's a really good thing. But when kids get love lavished on them, not just when they do the good stuff, but when they're horrific. When they know you've seen the worst of them and you still lavish the praise on them, that becomes like a superpower to them. That is a key for the rest of their lives. This person's going to love me no matter. They've seen the depths of me, the worst of me. I've pooed on them, I've sworn at them, I've ignored them, all of that stuff, and yet I am still completely loved. It's like a superpower. Key is being able to see yourself. Not that you're better than anybody else. That's not the key to getting by. The Bible says anyway, if it's about good and evil, it's about whether you can see yourself in that story. And if you can see yourself, and this is where the cross becomes like a superpower for us. God says, I've seen you. I've seen the depths of you, and I love you. And if you believe that, you're onto something. The last thing that it shows us, I think, it's perhaps the most difficult bit to accept. We can't overlook the fact this is a horrible, evil story. And I'm coming back to the previously that I've dropped in there that you've maybe forgotten about. Doeg, Eli's sons. Evil, even in this act of evil, this is one of the hardest things to grasp, so you're fine if you say, I can't just accept this right now, I might have to go home and have a coffee, talk it over with somebody. Even in evil, God is proved. Even in this horrific moment, this thing that we can't really even read, God is proved. Saul was thinking, as he sent Doeg out and butchered the priests, he's thinking, I am beating God back here. I'm beating back God's plans. I'm going to find my own plans. That's what he's thinking. I can beat him. If I bludgeon everybody to death and if I kill all those people, I'll beat him back. And incredibly, he doesn't beat him back. He can't beat him back. Bizarrely, wonderfully, because we know the bigger story, because we know the previously, he actually only proves him. God said right at the start, this is how it's going to go. This is how it needs to be. 
however sinful, violent, perverse our world gets, and occasionally it looks pretty sinful and violent and perverse, we don't beat God back. It might feel like that. You might watch the news and think that's what's happening. God's getting less and less and less and less. God stands there untroubled by all of this because he called it at the start. We just enact the curse of sin. We just enact all of you will go your own way and do your own thing. We just enact the script that God laid down for us. We don't disprove him. We don't beat him back. We just prove him right. This might help with your struggle and your wrestle because the first people that preached preach this message. And again, I'm sorry that I've not got this text up. This is another one maybe to go and look at. It's in the first couple of preachers that um, Peter delivers at the start of Acts. Listen to what he says. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This is the preach. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You did the worst that you could. It was perhaps the most evil thing that has ever happened on the world, in the world. To take that man who was clearly a good man, a perfect man, and to beat him to death. And everybody that's beaten him to death, the Roman Empire, the Pharisees, us, think that we're beating him up and we're shutting him up. And yet, all that we do and all that has happened, and this is the reality, is that we've proved him right. Evil, hard as it is to accept, doesn't disprove our God. It's just the tough reality of how it is. The last little bit, I'm not going to leave you there. It's true, wrestle with it. It's true in, in my opinion, it's true, something to think about. I'm not going to leave you there. The last little bit of the text it's really lovely. Somebody escapes with God. There's always escape. With God in the Old Testament, somebody always escapes. Somebody always gets away. His people always prevail. They might only be 400. They might be slaves. They might be a tiny wee church down the road in Airedale or Kutsike or somewhere like that or here. But they always prevail. Abiathar gets away. And David says, don't worry, I'll look after you. However long this story goes, Jude said something really uh, lovely in the members meeting on Thursday past there. She said, we don't know what's going to happen with escape. It's actually sinking, apparently. <laughs> sinking. We don't know what will happen of this church in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Uh, she spoke actually about a church in Leeds uh, near the Tetley's building. I can't quite remember what it's called now. It's a glorious looking building, but nobody goes there anymore to church. We don't know what the future holds, but we do know we've enough evidence to see that God will always make a way. His people will always prosper. We might be 400, we might be 1,000, but his kingdom goes on. Will we look at ourselves long enough Will we put the filter off? Will we turn to his word? Will we see what he says about us enough and to be able to live that out?